Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415 or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is more like a conversation than an interrogation. This is having an episode in public. The guest today is James Bernard Frost, author of A Very Minor Prophet, which is a unique and formally inventive novel now available from Hawthorne Books. It was just optioned for the silver screen. As a matter of fact, uh, Jim is a longtime contributor to The Nervous Breakdown, and he went through an incredible amount of trial and tribulation to get this book done and written and into print. And so it's great to see the fruits of his labor and to see this thing out in the world and finding readers. Uh, he and I are going to be talking about that, and you'll get to hear all about it in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, not a huge amount to report on this front. I did not go to Coachella, the Coachella Music Festival. Uh, I've never been to Coachella. Uh, it's the festival out in the desert in Indio, just outside of Palm Springs. And uh, in all likelihood, uh, I will never go to Coachella. Uh, or maybe I will someday. I don't know. It's hard to imagine at this point. I cannot envision it. 
Uh, and it's not that I'm opposed to it entirely or that I think it's bad or anything like that. It just seems like such a large event, so much humanity in one place. Uh, it's hard for me to access it mentally. You know, like what is going on there? It's hard for me to comprehend the logistics of it. Uh, and, and maybe this just means I'm getting old. You know, I think of Coachella and I think of portalettes. I think of street meat. I think of noodle dancing. I think of paramedics. I think of cool down rooms. I think of heat stroke. Although, uh, this year they did have some weather. Uh, it was unusually cold, unseasonably cool out there from what I hear. And there was also some rain as well, some precipitation, which is very rare in the desert. Uh, and you know, Coachella being in the desert has always been one of its most encouraging attributes as far as I'm concerned, because when you compare it to, for instance, Bonnaroo, which I believe takes place in Tennessee in some field somewhere, the contrasts are pretty striking. Because when you're in Tennessee, that means humidity and rain and mud and mosquitoes and ticks and chiggers and whatnot, which is a lot to deal with in addition to the hundreds of thousands of people uh, undulating out there. You know, I believe it's hundreds of thousands of people who attend this thing. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, again, maybe this is a function of age or maybe it's just insight. But when I was a kid, when I was a young man, a young boy, I remember idealizing the 1960s as this kind of magical time when things were better and people were nicer and more intelligent and things were getting figured out and the brotherhood of man for one brief shining moment was singing collectively in harmony. And I remember thinking of Woodstock and wishing that I had gone to Woodstock and feeling like I missed out by not being there and uh, actually feeling bad about myself, like feeling like I had been born too late, feeling like something happened at Woodstock that I wished badly that I could have been a part of but, of course, would never be a part of. But then, as the years went by, I thought about it some more, and more importantly, I watched, like, Woodstock documentary footage on cable television and soon decided that Woodstock looked, in actuality, uh, fairly miserable. Like, even the, musicians even the musicians looked like they weren't having that much fun. There was torrential downpour and naked, hairy people wallowing in mud puddles. There were rainstorms, there was camping in a tent in a swampy field, there were bad acid trips, people uh, were naked in public who should not have been naked in public, ever. And I realize that some people object to that concept, and I've, I've sort of touched upon this before on this program. Excuse me. You know, I'm sorry uh, if this offends you, but I just disagree. Uh, you know, I discriminate when it comes to public nudity, and uh, I, I include myself in this discrimination. You know, I should not be naked in public. And what I'm saying, what I'm telling you here is that I know it. I believe it's called self-awareness. Nobody needs to see that. There's a small percentage of humanity that can pull off public nudity and deliver an aesthetically pleasing experience. And everybody else should just have the decency to keep their clothes on uh, for the love of God. That's my feeling. Uh, you know, people are trying to listen to music. Jimi Hendrix is playing, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix is playing the Star Spangled Banner. And all of a sudden, you've got this big, fat, hippie guy. He looks like a walrus. He's dancing terribly. He's completely naked. He's got a hairy back. And the next thing you know, he's rolling around in a mud puddle on acid right in front of you at your feet. He's in ecstasy. And some woman with an enormous 70s bush jumps on top of him, and they're wrestling in the mire. It's too much. Uh, I can't deal with it. You shouldn't deal with it either. No one should have to deal with that. Uh, I need to be in a bubble is what I've decided. I need to be in a large plastic bubble 
on a raised platform. Uh, <laughs> I want to be like the Pope. I want to have a, a Pope mobile. I want to have a golf cart with the bulletproof glass all around me, encapsulating me at public events. Does this mean I'm an elitist? No, because I want everyone to have Pope mobiles. That's what I want. Everyone should have segways with plastic bubbles around them. <laughs> That's what I want. I want everyone in plastic Segway bubbles. I'm sort of rambling here. Uh, I'm a little bit caffeinated. Obviously, I'm half kidding. I'm just saying that the older I get, the more reflexively confused I am by mass demonstrations of humanity. You know? You show me a massive group of people gathering for a single purpose anywhere, and I will undoubtedly find ways to be confused and possibly troubled by it, somehow. And I don't care if it's Times Square on New Year's Eve, or if it's a football game at a stadium, or a literary festival of some sort, it will somehow perplex me and cause disquiet in my brain. It's what I do, it's how I operate, it's how my mind works, it's something that I'm aware of, it's something that I'm working on, I'm trying to compute. I'm trying to be well-adjusted, I am trying to stay hydrated and maintain an open mind. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, yeah, it took five years and ten drafts. Um, and it kind of started out, I, I started writing it in 2004 in the middle of the uh, presidential elections when all it was was a whole bunch of rants about George W. Bush, which isn't really a good way to start a novel. Um, and so then I had to kind of add all these, these, these sort of layers to it to make it entertaining and who was, who was ranting and, um, and why would anyone care? And that's where sort of all the different layers of, of the novel came into play. Um, and eventually became sort of this weird uh, semi-illustrated novel. Um, a, a recent reviewer called it a, an experience, because you can't really call it an illustrated novel. Or it's half told in these zines and half told in text. And it's sort of more so now just the story of a young man sort of discovering himself and that he could actually care about things if he wanted to. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, when you say it's this kind of hybrid form, that's not usually an easy sell with publishers. No, it wasn't. It was, it was difficult. It, 
it wasn't just difficult. It was that I could literally not get people to open the document. You know, I had some agents who were interested in the premise, and then I would send them the sort of 52 megabyte file, and it, it doesn't really work in a Word document, so it had to be a PDF. And then they couldn't figure out how to get on their e-readers. And then I was just this too complicated person to deal with anymore. What do you mean? Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, like, like not that you were personally uh, complicated to deal with, but just that you just that after eight, after eight emails back and forth, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about the sort of New York publishing world where they're dealing with a hundred different queries a week. Um, and these, these poor interns or whoever they are that are dealing with you. And, um, I literally had a hard time getting anyone to open it. Um, and after a while, it just became you know, frustrating. And one of the nice things with, uh, with Hawthorne, when I, when I eventually came to them with it, um, was that, you know, they immediately sort of got it. They're like, okay, it's, it's half zines, half text. Like that's going to be difficult to deal with. So let's, let's figure out how we're going to do that. Right. Uh, and so when you say, when you said earlier too, about the origins of the book and how it started, uh, out of this kind of like political outrage, uh, like right. this, this sense of personal political outrage. And, and you said that that's not a good starting point for a book. Like, why do you say that? Have you ever read just a book of a bunch of rants? I mean, Anne Rand sort of got away with it, but most people don't. Yeah, no, she, she actually came to mind because I was thinking the same thing. I, mean, <laughs> I, I tend to agree with you because I think if you start, uh, if you're trying to, to sell a political point in the context of fiction, it tends to be pretty hard because I think as a reader, you can always feel it when the writer intrudes and they're trying to yeah. uh, do that. And so, I mean, is that basically... Yeah, go ahead. I mean, it comes across as self-righteous and um, that you're kind of yelling at people. And either the people who are reading it agree with you and they're like, okay, I agree with you, but this isn't very entertaining. Or they don't, and they would never read the book. Right. Um, and so what I really sort of turned the book into was about someone sort of uh, coming to their own uh, decisions about politics and about religion, rather than this sort of blasting of all the things I felt like I needed I had to say at that point in time uh, about what was going on uh, politically. Um, and so it, it just took, because the book transformed so much, it took forever to write. And when did you feel like you finally had the tiger by the tail? Like, what was it? Was there anything that you could point to that felt like a singular epiphany or was it just sort of a long, what was it? Well, no, I mean, I wrote about that in the, in the essay on the nervous breakdown that, you know, as I was writing this novel, I felt this sort of um, shame about the book itself. Um, you know, who was I to to be giving these lectures uh, about politics or my thoughts about religion to, to the world? Um, and a lot of people do that, and they don't feel the same way I do. Um, but I had this certain nugget inside of me that was, um, you know, there was a little bit ashamed of what I was doing. And that sort of feeling, I realized, was sort of at the core of the narrator's um, arc in that 
you know, at first he met this crazy dwarf self-styled preacher in this um, mutant bike church in Portland, Oregon, and wrote and created these ironic zines about him. And then halfway through the novel, he's like, he kind of realizes, well, at least this guy has a purpose in life. I don't. Um, and so kind of like, you know, finding that arc in the story sort of in my own emotions about the novel was what made it finally start gelling. Yeah, no, I mean, do you ever, I mean, it's kind of, I think it's kind of similar to the envy that I sometimes feel when it comes to uh, like really uh, hardcore religious believers. Like as, as much as I can't, yeah. I can't bring myself there intellectually, but there's a part of me that really envies people who can, because it, it seems like uh, such a nice, like uh, defining structure to a life you know like uh yeah yeah there's something, yeah, it's it's something so, it's, easier it's about easy it. in some ways yeah um and also you know it's just it's a really it's a generational thing I don't, I don't think we think of it so much but you know my parents have their beliefs and they never doubt them and they never and they you know feel very comfortable with letting other people know what they are and most people of the older generation simply do that. But we have this thing, I think, that I don't know if I want to use the word Generation X, but but we always seem to have to comment on our own on our own belief systems. You know, we can't just lay it out there. We have to kinda of let people know that we're not maybe quite that serious. There has to be this level of of uh, covering ourselves. Um and I don't know why that is, but it's a, it's kind of a generational thing. Like it's hard to, it, it's like we kind of have to have this little coolness about ourselves that isn't quite serious about things. Well, yeah, or just like uncertainty. That's how I feel. I just don't know. Right. You know? And like, I'm, right, right, right. And, and I'm very, and I'm very, and I'm very willing to tell anybody that, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's just what right. I'm telling Like, I'm curious to know about your folks then, or like, or what's, what's their background? Like, what is their belief? Yeah, I came from a Catholic family. Um, I'm like the oldest of seven, so they're very conservative, very, uh, very Catholic. Um, yeah. So that was, you yeah, know, I'm the same obviously way. Obviously, what same I was kind of, yeah. Not quite as many kids though. My grandmother had nine. My mom comes from a family of nine, and like some of her sisters were nuns, and like that's how hardcore Catholic they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, uh, I am not hardcore Catholic and I, I'm, I'm assuming that you're not either or are you still in it? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm a very firm agnostic. Okay. Yeah. I think that's where I, I, I believe, I believe there's something out there and I have no idea what that is. That's about where I am. I mean, I, I and I, when you say something, it's like, you know, uh, are you thinking like some sort of, you're not thinking some sort of like paternalistic, uh, humanistic God. You're just thinking like something no. way beyond our understanding. Yeah. There seems to be too much serendipity in the world for it to just be complete randomness, I guess. I hope. I, I don't know if that made any sense whatsoever, but... Well, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I sometimes think that, too. Like, there is, like... I don't know. There's a lot of serendipity you can point to, but there's also a lot of, like, really awful stuff. And you're just like, how could that, how could that possibly happen? You know? Yeah. And maybe we're just hanging on to the serendipitous stuff because it gives us a, a narrative. Yeah, I like that narrative though. I kind of need that. <laughs> yeah, I know we all need the narrative. That's the thing. I don't know. Like it's even if we don't have belief systems, we still can't like quite just say it's all random because we all need to 
make our own stories up um, about ourselves. Well, and so with this book, like when you talk about, you know, taking five years to do it and having to go through all sorts of different iterations with it, uh, yeah. like what, there, there must have been times when you were ready to quit or when you thought that maybe the entire thing was for naught and that you had been misguided. Yeah, pretty much after each draft. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and the funny thing is, is that I never, I never really got through a draft. Like I would write 300 pages and realize I got nowhere near the end and there wasn't enough of an arc and there wasn't enough conflict. And then I'd kind of go back to close to the beginning and, and start over again. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, you know, it ruined my life. <laughs> There's, you know, I could have written six different books in that amount of time. I could have gotten a real job. I could have, uh, helped support my family. I mean, it was, it was a disaster, but I was also just, I always felt like I'm only three or three months, six months away. I can get it right this time. Um, it's not really knowing what I was, I was what say, I was getting myself into. It sounds like a drug addiction, you know, <laughs> like you're like this the next time. Or, it's some, yeah, I'm stubborn. I'm a Taurus. I just, I don't know. I kept going despite everything. Um, and that was it. I mean, it was just you're just pure stubbornness. So, because you know, that's the question that that uh, you know I want to ask is if if it if it's ruining your life and it's driving you crazy and every single draft always uh, comes up short. Uh, as you're growing, right. like, how did you find the, you know, the, um, strength to keep going? I think part of it was just that each new draft had kind of a new idea where I thought I knew what, it, what, what I was going to need to do to fix it. And I was convinced that that was the right thing. And so, you know, it, it was sort of, it wasn't, it wasn't, completely blind like i thought i had the answer and then it just wasn't it just wasn't quite working um but in the end you know hawthorne my my uh, editor there he calls it a chaotic masterpiece and that's sort of how i feel about it it's like a painting that you just added more and more layers on and sort of got sort of deeper and deeper as i wrote it um i hope i never have to go through this kind of process again with a novel, but at the same time, I'm, I'm sort of proud of sort of the madness that came out of it. Just by, by sticking with it. And like when you um, look at it now, do you feel that it's done? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you, know, yeah. you don't look at it and think to yourself, oh God, you know, maybe I should have added more. Like you, you knew finally when to step away. Yeah, no, it's done. I'm, I'm, I've never been as pleased as I am with this particular thing. I mean, the 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 plot has so many twists that I'm sure a very picky reader will look at it and say, well, you didn't quite wrap this particular thread up. But it's still pretty tight considering everything that happened. And, um, yeah, it, it feels really good. It feels great. So what was your uh, what was your regimen when you were writing this thing? Like how disciplined were you? And were you a kind of an everyday person or – you know, I, I, I changed a little bit over time as I wrote this. Um, I kind of started with sort of the Stephen King thousand words a day thing, um, 
where I'd go sit down and I wouldn't finish until I got those thousand words done. And then I'd set it aside for the next day, no matter where else I got. Um, sort of over the course of writing it, I just, my life got a lot more complicated and I couldn't quite do that anymore. And uh, I'd just been doing the heavy discipline stuff so much that I could count on myself to, to come back a little bit more when I needed to. Um, but in some ways, that type of a process was, was what got me into trouble is that at times as I was writing the novel sort of into, into space, um, it might have been smarter to take a step back and say, hey, you know, where am I going with this, really? Um, but, you know, live and learn. Well, no, that's interesting because I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, you get into a, a rhythm as a writer and you get yourself into a, a, a regimen and you're getting up really early and you're counting your words and you're determined. And it does take uh, that kind of willpower, you know, uh, especially, yeah. especially just to get the thing off the ground and to get some words piled up on the page. Uh, right. But sometimes in, in the cert, like you, you sort of get, a, uh, you know, what's the word? I guess addicted to that process and you'll right you know you don't you don't see the forest for the trees and you find yourself just adding words to add words and to give yourself that daily feeling of accomplishment when um you know right. you might be better served by taking a, a you know a, an aerial view of the thing and actually right coming to grips with what it is spend a week with an outline yeah I mean, so, <laughs> so i'm taking it there's no outlining happening here you know i i i did spend a lot of time trying to get this crazy thing into an outline that made sense. Um, and sometimes that helped and sometimes that didn't. Um, but, you know, some of it, just the nature of what I was doing, I mean, interweaving text and, and images into a novel, it's just, it's not something that there's a uh, how to, how to plot book for. Um, there's just, there's, there wasn't a whole lot of precedent for what I'm doing. And I knew I wasn't writing a three act play. Um, so I, I sort of had to create the structure as I, as I wrote. Well, and then what about friends? Like, do you have friends and family members reading this as you went or were you, were you operating, um, you know, on a wire? I have a couple, you know, I bounced around a bunch of, uh, a couple of writing groups while I was, uh, working on it. Um, a couple of fantastic ones here in Portland, um, with some, some big names in them. Um, and, it really helped. I, I felt like I needed that. I also at times felt like there were a little too many voices telling me, pulling directions with the novel. Um, well, yeah, no, that's that's actually I, an, it's an interesting question because I've never done a reading, uh, uh, you know, a writer's group, but I've thought uh, that maybe it would help me. You know, like I was like, oh, you know, that might be something I should do, even though yeah. like at first blush, it's something that you know internally I resist. Um, yeah. But you know what what it, what it amounts to is you're just sitting in a room with other people. You exchange stuff. Do you read out loud, or do you just exchange stuff, and then uh, everybody gets together and talks about whatever everybody read? Is that how it goes? Uh, this particular writing group, you uh, read out loud. Um, there was no sort of homework, which is what we were trying to avoid, and you just responded, you know, immediately to to what was read. Um, and like I said. I think there's a certain maturation process for me as to how to handle writing groups. And that at first I would sort of take the, you know, eight different uh, manuscripts that I'd gotten back from somebody from these eight different people and try to sort of 
you know, fix everything that they had made suggestions to. And um, now I sort of, <laughs> now in my writing group, I sort of take those, those, those eight manuscripts and I recycle them. <laughs> and then two weeks later when I go back to the piece, I just kind of, whatever resonated with me that someone mentioned in, in, in discussing it, I would kind of work on and stuff that didn't resonate, I, I wouldn't touch. Um, there's just a danger in, in thinking everybody's an expert. Um, right. Well, no, and I, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel. And I, I remember teaching creative writing and just saying that, like, when it comes to workshop, uh, a good note that you receive from somebody tends to be self evident. Like, it, like, you know, yeah. you know it that it's true the moment they say it. <laughs> yeah. If you have to think about it too much, it's probably better just to go with your own thing because if there's going to be a mistake in your book, it might as well be your own. You know. Yeah. Exactly. And and uh, yeah, and it just can get too schizophrenic. Like it can tighten you up. Well, yeah, and, and so what's the scene like? I mean, it seems like there's a really supportive art, uh, you know, arts community and you know, literary community up in Portland. There's a lot of writers working out of that city. It seems there's a lot of writers up here. I mean, it's a uh, it's a difficult city in some ways because we're so far removed from uh, the publishing industry. Um, so we all feel like you know we're living in this this small pond, and there's hundred of us fish swimming around we're all trying to jump out um uh so but other than that i mean it, it's, it's definitely supportive there's so many people doing it um that uh you know you don't feel like you're completely isolated like you might in a in another town where you're the only person sitting in your basement spending years on this project you know where everybody thinks you're crazy <laughs> Well, I mean, do, but do you guys, I mean, aside from these writing groups, do you guys get together? I mean, I, when I imagine it, I just think of people in coffee shops and, uh, you know. Yeah. Is that it? Well, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. But, I mean, there's a reading every night. It's crazy here. You know, there's the Loggernaut series. There's unchased reading. There's, um, there's, there's poetry readings every night. It's kind of nuts here. Like, there's, you can't you can't blink without there being some sort of event. You know, we did a couple of the, the nervous breakdown, but, uh, literary experiences here and they're wonderful, but, uh, you know, we're competing with three other literary events in a week, which is great because you just don't see that everywhere. Well, now is it seasonal too? Do people like, is it because of the, you know, the winter weather and people do more readings or does it just go all year round? It's all year round. Although I don't know why it seems like springtime is nuts. And autumn is nuts. And I think it's because people have books that come out then. And so they're really out there promoting. Um, and um, especially if you're like someone like me who's with a small press, it's really important that the book at least does well here in Portland um, and possibly in the Northwest. Um, just to get enough noise here that your book has a chance nationally. And so, um, you know, I have probably like 10, 15, just Portland events in the next two months that I'm going to be doing. Um, and, and wacky stuff too. Like I'm reading at uh, Voodoo Donuts. There's this thing called uh, Dante's Inferno. That's like a cabaret. We're doing a literary gong show. Um, so you, you really have to sort of tap into the entertainment part of it as well uh, to make it happen. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, 15 events in, in how much time? Like you said, like two months? Like a couple of months. <laughs> Goodness gracious. And so uh, how do you, I mean, how do you measure success in the Portland market? Like, Do you have like a book sales number targeted in your mind or is it a little looser than that? Or It's totally loose. And it, it just depends on who your publisher is. Um, Hawthorne has, does does very well for what they do as an independent publisher, but the numbers don't, you know, the numbers don't compare to, um, a book that's getting six figure advance that, you know, they, they've got the, they've got the book on the front, on the front table of every Barnes and Noble in the country. We just can't do that. Right. How does that happen? So, by the way, is that just like you, you have sales reps and the sales reps talk to Barnes and Noble and I'm, I'm still not a, a thousand percent clear. You process. know, there's this amazing, uh, there's this amazing article you should read sometime in Vanity Fair, and it was about uh, the art of fielding. Chad Harbuck. Yeah, I, I read that. And read it, that. Ex- it explains the whole process really amazingly. And when I read it, I sort of, you know, it was the the article was sort of meant to uh, sort of champion this guy's story. But when I read it, I, I had sort of the opposite effect, where I just was like. Oh God! Unless that happens to you, you're doomed. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. And I clearly, because, clearly, I know, retain I mean, nothing. The 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 you know the the space gets bought. You pay thirty grand and you get your book on a certain place in a on a table at, at Barnes and Noble. And I have a friend who who worked at one of the bookstores, and they literally gave them a map of where every book was supposed to be placed. Um, on each table in each store, um, so there's so it's so sort of controlled from from up top and the publicity and marketing departments that you know it, it's it's hard to it's hard to break into if, if these days if you have a smaller book and you're depending on a bookseller to sort of decide they like it and, and put it in front of the store, you know you could do it at some of the independent bookstores, but certainly not the bigger chains. Yeah, well, no, and so it's just like publishers deciding they're going to place a thirty thousand dollar bet on one of their titles, essentially, like you know, right? Give or take a right. few dollars or a few. And those dollars. books sell because you know, the bookstores market the books that they have in their store. They want to get rid of all their stock. They don't want to send it back to the publisher, so they market what's in the store. Um, so it sort of adds to it. It makes everything sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is a little bit depressing to me. Well, so now that you have this book coming out and it's uh, it's making its way out into the world, like how do you feel about this part of the process where you're out kind of stumping for it? Like how much human energy, after all the human energy you expended writing the thing, like how much human energy do you feel like you're prepared to give to try to push it and maybe um, you know make it uh, kind of like a, a dark horse? Uh, yeah, winner. You know, I'm I'm trying really hard, um, and part of it's just uh, Hawthorne Books and my publisher because they do too, and you know, their their publisher is out there doing ridiculous things to get your book out on the market, and you kind of feel like you got to do ridiculous things as well. Um, and you know, I mean, you've talked to a lot of authors. It's not our natural forte. I mean, so many of us became writers because we have a hard time like talking. <laughs> well, but don't it's you, don't easier, you... it's easier for us to write it down. So now all of a sudden we've got to go in front of, you know, a hundred people and talk. 
Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like people ask me, they're like, you know, how do you do this this show? And I think like this particular format, because I'm sitting at home, you know, like right. uh, it's actually th- this I can actually do. It's like when I'm in a huge room with like 600 people or 50 people, it becomes more. You difficult. just fall apart. Well, yeah, oh, you know, in- internally. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Try, well, I'm the same way. I try not to, but, you know, it's just like it gets to be a little bit more difficult. Um, but I do find and, and tell me if you think similarly that. Uh, when I look around, and when I say look around, I mean like stare at my computer screen and watch the internet. Um, I do find that there are um, there is a tendency uh, that I see uh, for authors, and particularly young authors who have some success, to actually be good at the hustle, you know, like and to be yeah. good, and to have like a really well honed marketing instinct. Uh, I see that yeah. I see that repeatedly. And, uh, you know, not everybody has that. And I think that, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, I guess that's just the way that it works and probably is the way that it's always worked in some way, shape or form. But right. it, it also, I find it also kind of a little bit heartbreaking when I think of authors who don't necessarily have that inclination or that ability, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a sea change. I'm not sure exactly what I think about it. I have at least some mild extroversion qualities, so I, I'm not completely... It's not a complete disaster for me. I mean, thinking of like Poe Ballantyne, who just like you know doesn't want to leave his like room, or uh, another another favorite author of mine, Paul Nealon, who wrote a wonderful book, but <laughs> you just can't you can't you can't get him on a stage. Um, so it is a little bit heartbreaking because you know the the people who are you like to think that the observation quality that makes someone a good writer, um, you, you, you want someone to sort of champion what they've observed and put it out there in the world. And it's sort of getting harder and harder for those kind of people to, to be seen because of sort of the hustle that's, that's out there. But I don't know um, if that's good or bad. It's just a thought. Yeah, it's just it just seems to be like, you know, the way things are now and I I guess like, you know, when you have a book coming out, it can sometimes put you in a situation where you're willing to test your limits as far as that goes too because you yeah. you care enough about the book that you're willing to endure uh some discomfort, you know. Yeah. And social media also allows you to be a lot braver than than you actually are. <laughs> Yeah, because seem like a really outrageous person on person on Facebook, and then <laughs> then you meet the person, and you're like, "Wow, you're the dullest individual I've ever met." But man, <laughs> but you know, that, 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 I think that's true, and I'm sure that it, you know, I'm sure it happens, uh, and it might have even happened with somebody that I've uh, like cyber known. But what I find that, <laughs> what I find that sort of odd is like how accurate it is. You know, like if I if I know somebody uh, online, and you know, and then, uh-huh. and then I actually meet them. Uh, like 9.9 times out of 10, I'm not the least bit surprised. And, and not only that, but <laughs> it's exactly what I expected. Like right down to like right. uh, how a person talks and, and looks and everything. It's strange. <laughs> is that the case? Well, with, is that good the case with you? I mean, do you, or do you, I don't know. I, I, maybe, I, I don't know. Everyone, everyone seems so much more glamorous on Facebook or something. Yeah, there's a lot of vacation photos. There's a lot of that going on. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. 
Um, okay, so aside from the events in the Northwest, are you going to set out into the uh, the wider country to to promote? I am. Thing? I am. I'm uh, in. I'm in San Francisco on April twentieth at Booksync in the Marina. Uh, April twenty third, I'm at Changing Hands Bookstore in Phoenix, Arizona, and then uh, April twenty fifth, I'm at Better Day Coffee Shop, um, which is my brother's coffee shop in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, wow. Okay. So those are three events, and then I'll be up in Seattle as well. Um, okay. Well, let's then let's dial it back, and let's like I want to go back into your writing past prior to uh, you know working on this book. Like, how did you get started in this, and you know how how early can you trace it? Um. Well, my I can trace it to my sixth grade classroom. Um. But as far as my publishing career is concerned, well, no, let's let's go to sixth grade actually. Like, you want to go back to sixth grade? Yeah. What, ha- what, ha- what happened in sixth grade? <laughs> you know, our our teacher gave us an, an assignment to write a story about how the planets were created, and uh, I went home and wrote twelve pages on loose leaf paper in my awful cursive. Um, about how the planets were, were made. And she was sort of expecting a couple of sentences, and I came in with this massive, sort of short story. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and they loved it, and she made me read it in front of the class, which was my first uh, experience of um, being completely humiliated in front of an audience. Um, and uh, I think, I guess that was the start of my uh, desire to, to write bigger things than I should. And then from, from there, what happened? Uh, well, so I, let, let's see, I'm not going to go through every, every English class I ever took, but, <laughs> no, um, I mean, like, well, let's just say, you know, you continued so, writing fiction. Like when was the first time you attempted a novel that didn't happen when you were in high school or anything, did it? No, well, my first big project was actually uh, the Artichoke Trail, which is a vegetarian guide to uh, or a guide to vegetarian restaurants in the United States. And uh, I had very little publishing experience at the time. I was doing uh, it was in the middle of the dot com boom in San Francisco, and so everybody was just sort of doing their crazy dot com jobs that, that you were at sixty hours a week, and you were going to be millionaires when you were done. Um, but in the midst of that, I wrote a proposal to write this, this travel guide for vegetarians. It was sort of just an idea that I had. didn't know much about the publishing world at all um, and pitched it a few places. And this very odd uh, travel guide company in Florida called Hunter Publishing, um, which mostly does scuba diving books, was like, this is a fantastic idea. There aren't any guidebooks for vegetarians out there. Let, let's sign a book deal. And uh, I was thrilled, you know, being a writer was sort of a long-time dream that I never thought could actually happen. And I ended up leaving my dot-com job in the middle of the boom, which everyone thought was the craziest thing in the world because, of course, my options were going to vest and I was going to be a millionaire. Um, And I traveled the country and and wrote this this travel guide. Wow, and they paid for it all? Oh, no. I paid for most of it. I mean, I got I got my advance, <laughs> right. and then I just I just paid for it. I didn't know any better, you know. Yeah. I thought when the book was done, I would it would go in the bookstores, and they'd write me a fifty thousand dollars check after all the sales happened. Right. Um, 
And, uh, of course, that didn't happen. The book won a couple of awards, which was really nice, um, and did well from just a review standpoint. Um, but that was right around when everyone could just research vegetarian restaurants on the Internet. Which changes things. Which changes things. <laughs> so what were you, how were you traveling around? Were you in a car, just motoring around the country? I, uh, I did different things at different places. But what I ended up doing for the East Coast tour was I flew to Miami and I rented a car and I was going to drive it all the way to Ithaca, New York, where the Moosewood restaurant is, sort of one of the more famous vegetarian restaurants in town. And, uh, you know, it was quite an outlay of money to rent a car for uh, three, I think, three weeks or a month. Um, so when I got to Florida, though, I was, I was fortunate in that they had a, uh, they needed to get a convertible back up to New York, um, for the summertime. So I got to drive around this, this, uh, fancy red, I can't remember what it was, a red convertible. Was it a Chrysler Sebring? Something like that. (laughs) But, but of course, so now I'm pulling up to these sort of vegetarian restaurants in my red convertible. <laughs> all over the country it was interesting and so, so i mean was it, this was not a 50 state tour like I'm, that's what i was envisioning like when you're doing a, a... i didn't quite do that i mean i reviewed a bunch of of the more famous vegetarian restaurants around and um places i couldn't actually go i would simply sort of do a write-up of you know, what I researched that was available there. Um, so there was the, the book, the travel guide was sort of mixed to these personal reviews with just kind of listings of what, what else was there. So did you tell these, did you tell these restaurants that you were coming in advance and, or did you, did you not just, I guess you couldn't get an accurate review that way. If you told Well, it's funny because I wasn't a, I wasn't a professional food reviewer at the time. So I didn't really know what the game was. Um, and so I started by calling a few and realized kind of what a fiasco that was because you just got over catered to and you had no real way of experiencing the restaurant like anybody else did. And so then as I progressed with the tour, I stopped calling out of time and I just showed up. Okay. Um, so what's the best vegetarian restaurant that you ate at? There's a place called grasshopper. I don't even know if it's still there. I think it was in Boston, Massachusetts. It was a small little place I really enjoyed. Um, and uh, this one was pretty great up in Ithaca. Up in Ithaca. Okay. So when you say you left your dot-com job and you went off and did this uh, while all you, you know the rest of your friends were back at their jobs waiting to vest their shares and make millions of dollars, like, yeah. you know, that is not a decision that most people would make. Uh, but no. it, but it is a decision that most writer people would make, and you yeah. know it, it occurs to me that like anybody who does this, who who tries to become a writer, uh, is really a little bit insane. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, yeah. there's something like really irrational and uh, deranged about thinking that you're going to be able to make a living doing this. So when you look back, do you have you ever found yourself questioning your own judgment? Uh, or your own sanity for for attempting this, or do you have like? Well, not even looking back. Pretty much every day, 
Okay, so how do? What's the deal there? Like, because I, I feel the same way. It's like, what have I done? You know, like what? Like all I, I know. All I did. I was, don't know. All I did was pursue what I what I was interested in. You know. Like, yeah. That's what I was. I don't told know. To do. I don't. I don't. I don't know any other way. The problem is, is that all the times in my life where I've sort of fought this, you know, I've I've I've, I've gotten another job and I and I've tried to take another career path. I think every year or two, I I. I, I literally decide I'm going to go to law school or uh, or pursue a marketing degree, and I and I start taking the steps to do that. And then somewhere around somewhere a month or two into that process, I just I realize I don't care about it. I, I just and I can't actually physically do anything I don't care about, and I end up going back to writing. Okay, so here's okay. That's a good point because I kind of feel the same way. And it's like, do you think that normal people just make themselves care and that we're just being little babies. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, I, that that may actually be the case. Yeah, because it's like, well, maybe, maybe I, these people, I mean, because I have that thought in my head where I go, God, do these people really give a shit about this stuff? Like, do they really like? To, right. To, we're, to, just, we're just egotistical, self-obsessed narcissists. Is that it? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> you know, but it's like it's a very... I, I don't know, you know, we just have it's you know, I think there's other people that do carry a lot of passion in other things other than writing. Um and uh, I do think that there are people who just don't have a passion for anything and um want to enjoy their lives and and so you know, do something that they don't care that much about so that they can have free time to, to enjoy themselves, but uh, I don't know. I, I just I, I feel passionate about writing, and I I can't make myself do something else. Okay, so why what 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 is it about writing that makes you so passionate? Like, do you have uh, a way of defining it? Um. Well, for me, it's there's always pops up something that I'm struggling with. Um, and that becomes sort of the core of the, the emotional core of of the book that I'm writing. But then once that emotional core is there, I start kind of creating these these characters whose lives are affected by whatever this emotional core is. And then once I've created them, I can't get away from them. I have to sort of see their story to its conclusion. Um, and they just kind of become real people that I have to take care of. Until I'm finished writing their story. And is there sadness when the story's done? Like, do you have that experience where you feel sort of like uh, it's like bittersweet upon finishing? No, it's it's like I just sent them off to college and I'm waving them goodbye and I'm proud of them. You did it. Yeah, you got to the end. You did it. You're, <laughs> you're out there now. Go do whatever you're going to do. So, so, so at this moment, right now, with this book going out into the world. Uh, you're focused on that part of the process, and you're daily questioning your sanity about whether or not this yes. is the right thing to be doing. And right. are you thinking already about like the next book, or is that something you're sort of like waiting to do until after uh, this publicity cycle? Yeah, I'm halfway through another novel, um, and I'm chomping at the bit to get back to it while I'm sort of focusing all this publicity. Um, so I'm already in the middle of something else. And you feel pretty good about that? Yeah, the next, well, the next novel, I learned so much from writing this, this novel just about, just in terms of 
how I should be structuring a book. Um, and what did and you learn? What did you learn about structure? Well, I just, I, I, I sort of realized, I kind of like an artist, I guess, that you know, there's, there's really is this archetypal story structure that novels have been written in over the last thousand years, and I, for some reason, this never became clear to me when I was in an MFA program or during English. It's classes. It sort of became clear to me through uh, studying a lot of screenplays. Um, and and I and I just decided that from here on in, I want to write novels that are really well structured and that sort of follow a three-act structure and and uh, be very knowledgeable about where the um, sort of changing points are. Um, and now that I'm writing under that structure, I'm just finding it to be a it's an easier go of things for me. Um, I'm really proud of what I did with a very minor profit, and it's really unique. Um, which I think is going to give it a lot of appeal, but I'm sort of happy to be writing books now that I kind of know I can finish in six to nine months because I understand enough about story structure to just pound through them. Well, and when you say finish, do you mean finish a, a serious draft or do you mean finish like soup to nuts done? Uh, I think I can probably finish a serious draft in six months and then polish it in three and you're outlining like are you because i know with screenplays you know it's a much easier thing to or maybe a much more advisable thing to outline because it's a defined structure but is that part of the process now for you because you're using that yeah yeah i've been using scrivener actually um just to outline and i'm really just focused on you know the first act is a quarter of the book the second act is, is a half the third act is a quarter of the book here's basically what is going to happen in each chapter um, and even though I'm sort of a wild, zany, cameo, uh, serious novel, I, I find that actually having a little bit of control has been, has been, uh, helpful and I, and I'm not losing a lot by doing it. Do you deviate from your outline a lot? Not much. I mean, some kind of smaller, uh, subplots sort of appear, um, here and there, but that's just adding color. So I haven't deviated as much as I thought I would. Uh, okay, and then do you find that the writing of the outline is actually much more difficult than the writing of the novel itself once the outline is in place? No. I mean, the outline took me maybe a week and but where, where did pretty the, much... But the idea, must have been, the idea must have been germinating for a long time. You, you didn't just, oh, yeah. You didn't just conceive this thing in a week. No, 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 no. no. I mean... I was definitely, it's funny because it was a book that I, I, when I, when I finished a very minor profit, I decided that, uh, I needed to write something more commercial. And so I sat down to write a fantasy novel. Um, I'd always loved the Lord of the Rings and thought, Hey, you know, I'll just become a fantasy writer. So I wrote a hundred pages of a fantasy novel. And the whole time I was writing the fantasy novel, I had this idea for another book sort of germinating in the back of my head um, that I'd just been sort of toying with but not planning to write. And, of course, I finished the first 100 pages of this fantasy novel, sent it to a bunch of fantasy agents thinking that they were going to love it and want to see the rest of it. And they all kind of said, well, you're a, you're a, you're a literary writer. <laughs> wow. They knew. They, they, um, they, said, they all said that. 
I mean, they didn't know. They didn't all say that. But the but the general feedback I got was, hey, this is a really hard market to to, to break into. We need to see the whole thing um, in order to go further with it. And kind of not actually worded this way, but the, the general feeling was, hey, this isn't going to be any easier than selling literary fiction. Um, you know, why I thought writing genre would be easier to break into, I don't know. Um, but I sort of realized in that process that, hey, I've already got a great publisher. What am I doing? Um, I can I can write a, the kind of books that I love to write, and uh, I've got an outlet for it. And so I immediately put that aside and began working on this other project. And it's just been going pretty smoothly because I did have that sort of germinating time there. Okay, and like not to, I, not to, I don't mean this in any way to burst your bubble, but do you ever have the experience writing where you think something is going really well, and then uh, like the next week or the next day or whatever it is, you, 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 look, <laughs> you look at it and realize that you are dead wrong? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I don't know though. I know this one's going right. You know it. Uh, call, call me in six months. Okay, but but I. But but I but I know this one's going right in a way that I always knew uh, the last one that I was that I didn't quite know what I was where I was going with it. Well, that's good. It sounds like you have a nice like intuitive sense of your own work then. Yeah, and I mean this was you know a very minor project. People have this sophomore experience with their novels. Um, for whatever reason, that book seems to be the one that messes a lot of people up. Um, I think wasn't the I think the corrections took seven years. No, I'm right in the middle of it right now. I mean, I've been working the, on various things that have not satisfied me for almost that much time. You know, yeah, so. it's it's not, I don't know. It's the, the first book somehow writes itself, and the second book I think is where you learn to be a writer. Yeah, at least that's been my experience. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I think it's also a matter of figuring out. Like, it, it, you know, this is just my individual experience, but I'm sure it's probably applicable uh, to others as well. But it's such an interesting time in publishing, too. And yeah. Trying to, uh, you know, I don't know, trying to fit it all together, you know, and trying to write within that context is, you know, been part of it for me. Trying to figure out what kind of work I want to do, you know. Right. Right. Well, you're, I mean... I think so much more of being a writer is becoming about doing, about, you know, doing publicity. And so what you've done is amazing because you have a name for yourself based on your projects, which are wonderful, by the way. Um, so that, you know, but then you also need to find the time to actually write. Well, no shit. Yeah, that's the thing. But it's like, you know, <laughs> when I, whenever I talk about this with people, um, I always say it's like it, everything is born out of the frustration of trying to figure out how to move copies of a book, like how to actually yeah. do that and make a living as yeah. as an author. And so yeah. that's where it all comes from. And like that's what this show's about too, is hoping, you know, hoping to connect readers with, with uh, good writers and to get books moving. And um, yeah. that's the quest, I think, or at least part of the quest. But then the other side of it is, is finding the time to write, which means getting up at ungodly hours and, you know, just living <laughs> living like a crazy person on five hours of sleep, but that's just what, you yeah. that's just what you got to do. But uh, I think doing it from your direction is, is, it's just interesting to me. You know, I've always done it from the write the book and then sort of come out of your basement and, 
raise the book up into the air and sell it to the 10,000 people waiting at your doorstep. And uh, I don't, but you know, it doesn't really man, work. I don't it doesn't know. work very well that way. Uh, yeah, I don't, but I don't know. Like I sometimes look at people who are that like that, and I'm like, maybe I'm, you know, I'm expending too much energy on this other stuff, but. It's hard to tell. Um, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. And there's a part of me that really likes to facilitate. Like I like to, I like that side of it as well. Like I like to try to help, um, right? And do that sort of stuff behind the scenes. But it also, it's a balancing act. It's trying to find a balance between it. You know? Yeah. So, um, to get back to your writing and the way that you're approaching it now, like with this new kind of like, uh, you know, more defined structural approach. Like, do you right. do you think of yourself as writing books? that can easily be adapted for the screen? Is that part of your like logic when you're doing this? Um, it hadn't been, uh, but I'm starting to think that way. I mean, it's a really different scene up here in Portland than it is in Los Angeles, Brad. Like we just don't, we don't, we don't have all that sort of craziness around, um, the movie industry here. So, we're not very smart about thinking that way in general. Um, well, but, but you're, this, but you're, this you're book, studying screenplays and you're writing in three-act structure. That's more than most people do. This time I am. Um, and, um, you know, I worked with Chuck Palahniuk for a while, and he's an interesting writer in that he has a reputation for being, um, you know, really edgy and sort of almost as, profane as you can get and yet as a writer he's a he's a very very structured writer and you wouldn't really necessarily know it um from the types of books he writes but you know every book he writes he's thinking can this be the next fight club and he's he's putting him in these very you know he, he writes in a, in a in a very particular you know three-act structure sort of following the archetypal hero's journey and um, I, I just learned a lot from him about how you do that. Um, and so how do you I don't, do that? I'm not left with... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it is this sort of like, uh, you know, you, you, you start with a character sort of in this ordinary place. Um, something strange happens. He has to make a decision about whether he's going to stay in this ordinary place or, um, go into this wacky world, whatever it may be. And if, if it's science fiction, it's literally another world. But in, in regular fiction, it can be like my book, like walking into this church. Um, and then, and then that sort of culminates with this, with this decision that, that the, that the, that the narrator has to take. So then you kind of go into the second act um, and there's sort of this, there's got to be some conflict there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm totally rambling at this point, um, between the narrator and, and, and someone else. So there's, there's, there's sort of these battles going back and forth, um, which sort of builds up to a major confrontation, which again, sort of transforms the novel in the third act. Yeah. So it's, um, I mean, it's just like, the, I don't know if I explained it very well. No, but. you did. And it's just that elemental thing. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear that you approach it that way and it, that, uh, Chuck approaches it that way because it seems, uh, I don't know. It, that seems sort of surprising, but at the same time, uh, you know, like when you really kind of think about it, it's probably not the worst way to go about it. You know, it gives you. No, and it's, and it's, and if you do it in a subtle way, it doesn't feel manipulative. 
No, um, it's just it's just like the North Star, you know. It's just guiding you, and like there's, it, it seems to yeah. make perfect logical sense to try to uh, reduce story to its essential components, uh, you know, through the ages. There are similarities in terms of what makes a good story, and I think that's realistic right. to, to think of it that way. So, if you can locate those things and then apply that to your own work, it's probably only going to be um, in your best interest. Yeah, and I think. I think you know, writing has gotten so freeform that we forget how much of a history there is in the novel form. Um, and I think you can, I think kind of going back and learning what that structure is before writing more freeform works is, is sort of an important thing that a lot of young novelists don't bother to do anymore. And I mean, you see it in other fields too. You see it in art, you see it, you see it in poetry. It's like, well, how about learning some rhythm or meter first <laughs> um, before you start writing more freeform stuff? Well, no, it's, yeah, learn, and, like learn the, learn the rules before you break them, essentially. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, but you, and now just uh, to continue in this movie vein a little bit, like your book did get optioned for the screen. A Very Minor Prophet just got optioned, correct? Yeah, it's great. I'm very excited about it. Um, so how did that go down? Uh, well, um, first of all, Hawthorne Books has their own uh, film rights uh, person. So this was actually all done through my publisher, which is which is a little bit unusual. Um, and um, uh, Brent Main, who is um, one of the principals of Rocking Stone, um, has just sort of been following Hawthorne Books. Um, he had, was interested in uh, Clown Girl um, and for various reasons that didn't happen. Um, but sort of, but basically he told Rhonda Hughes, send me your novels before they come out. And I want to have an opportunity to make you, make you an offer if I love one. And so he got, he got a copy of a very minor profit and loved it. And we sort of worked on a deal for a few months, um, and made it happen. So, um, it's pretty cool to have your book option before it comes out. Because um, then it becomes not only do you sort of have the excitement of is this going to happen? It would be really great to have a movie adaptation of this, um, but also it sort of helps bring a little interest to your book that you might not have gotten otherwise. Yeah, people get excited about it. I mean, I saw it on social yeah. media. It kind of people were chattering for sure. So, yeah. do, do you have any sense of whether or not the movie is going to go, or is that just a long way off and a flip of a coin? I haven't had a whole lot of personal contact with them. Um, so I don't really know at this point. I've been sort of so focused on the book that I'm kind of letting them do their thing. Um, and like I said, I, I'm up here in Portland. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happens in LA sort of happens in LA. I'm sure in a couple months I'll, I'll hear more. I think also they're, they're, um, they're doing the screenplay. So I'm pretty sure they're hard at work at just, at just writing it out. Well, yeah. And you're, and you're not going to, so you're obviously not writing the screenplay then. That was the next question. <laughs> Yeah, I chose, well, it wasn't so much a choice as I knew that I hadn't done one before. And I, I, I kind of, you know, I threw my name into the hat, but I also told them, look, if you have somebody down there who you've already worked with, who you feel confident with working with, I'm totally comfortable backing off. Um, I don't know. I feel that when you write a book, it's you've written the book. And if someone wants to take that, and make a movie out of it, you should sort of let it go. 
a little bit and let them do what they're going to do with the movie because you always have the book. Yeah, that's immutable. So you can you can at least take comfort in that when they when they mangle it and change change the. the <laughs> well, yeah, and it's just, it's just it's just a different beast, and I, I don't want to have any ego around that um, because it's not my world. Yeah, because I feel that. Yeah, I feel that way too. I mean, a movie's a movie. It's a the, the director is the person who's making the movie. The screenplay is just the blueprint. Like that's I get all that, and I feel that way. And then sometimes I'll hear these stories, or I'll read these stories about authors who, uh, or screenwriters who care about their work so much that they, you know, they protest or they like lay themselves down on railroad yeah. tracks to get their point across, and they finally, you know, force their. Uh, you know, their will on the process and it winds up being a good thing or whatever the case may be. But when, when I read about that kind of thing or I hear about that kind of thing, it kind of sometimes makes me wonder if I don't care about my work enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You no, but I don't agree. I mean, it, it, it sort of turns me off just because as a writer, I mean, they can't go in and change page 162 of my book. You know, it's, it's done that, that book is that book. And I just feel like a movie is a collaborative effort between a producer and a director and actors. And it's just a totally different beast from what I do as a writer. And I respect what they do and it may work. It may not work, but these are two totally separate objects. Sure. And they only relate to each other through the title really. Um, and some of the ideas. So I guess I just appreciate what they're doing so much um, and don't understand it that whatever they do is going to be great. And if they can bring more people to read my book, I'm really happy. Well, I, uh, I hope it, I hope it we'll goes. We'll see what happens if it gets mangled. I don't know. I might feel different. Yeah, you might be sitting at the premiere weeping. You never know. Steaming. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man, you know, it's like you say, it's out of your hands at that point, and you've got to let somebody else have the creative freedom to interpret it and make it new, you know? Like that's, yeah. That's just the way I just want them to have a really good time with the material, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, it's all very exciting, and uh, congratulations on the book and on the uh, the option, and good luck to you on the tour coming up, and hopefully this thing takes off. Yeah, thank you so much, Brad. Um, like I said before, I, I, I the nervous breakdown is just an amazing thing, and uh, I don't know, you know, like like you said, it, there's you're a facilitator in the book world, and we all really appreciate that because I think writers tend to be so much about themselves that uh, having those kind of people who are willing to be facilitators is, is, uh, is something we really appreciate. Oh, well, thank you very much, man. I, I, uh, it's my pleasure and uh, best of luck with everything. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Cool. Thanks, Brad. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's James Bernard Frost. Go get his book. It's called A Very Minor Prophet. It's available now from Hawthorne Books. You can check him out on the web at jamesbernardfrost.com. He's also on Twitter at James B. Frost. You can find him on the Facebook as well. Uh, it's a nice story of perseverance, his story, and the story of his book. Much like, uh, I guess you could say, Woodstock could be classified as a nice story of perseverance. And the same goes uh, for any festival or large gathering of mass humanity where uh, you know middle and upper middle class people gather to subject themselves to the elements and to the rigors of hallucinogens and togetherness for a long weekend in the name of transcendence. 
yeah. So thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the music. Go check them out at killrockstars.com. And thank you once again to our sponsor, the UCLA Extension Writers Program. If you're working on a book, uh, a novel, or a collection of short stories, or a screenplay of some sort, and you want some instruction, or some structure, or some help, or some camaraderie, go sign up for a class. You can attend classes here in Los Angeles in person, or remotely via the internet. Either way works, and there's no time like the present. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. You can also visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. That's all for today, folks. Please remember that Wallace Stevens never saw Europe and that Charlotte Bronte was four feet, nine inches tall. Back again soon with another conversation with another person who writes things in an effort to hopefully make kind of a living. In the meantime, uh, please do not eat the brown acid. Do not eat the brown acid.